right. Um, turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. It's going to be our, um, our text for the day. And the topic this morning is, uh, as you can see on the, on the board there, three challenges for all believers. Three challenges for all believers. And uh, Hamish said this morning, this morning that, uh, that uh, Pastor Scott did preach out of this passage a little while ago. So if you remember that one, um, bear with me hearing it again. Uh, hopefully there's enough uh, different things. I don't remember that message, so uh, hopefully there's still some new material in here for you this morning as well. All right. Uh, so Hebrews 10, our, our text is going to be verses 22 to 24. And... Um, we're going to look at three encouragements from these verses, three three challenges for us as believers. Uh, before we just get into that, let's, let's just pray together and commit the time to the Lord. Dear Lord, we thank you for your precious word this morning. We thank you for the freedom to open it together. We thank you, Lord, that uh, everything we need is in your word, that uh, we can be encouraged and uh, built up by it. We can know the truth. We can get to know you more, Lord, personally. And I pray that this morning we would be challenged uh, together. Lord, to uh, to apply these three challenges to our lives, and Lord, uh, to be pleasing to you, Lord, and give you glory uh, through these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to read uh, verses 19 to 25, just to give us a little bit of context before we look at uh, the three verses, 22 to 24. Uh, yeah, 22 to 24. Right, so beginning in verse number 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So a tremendous uh, passage. And before we get into the, the, uh, the three challenges this morning, we just need to understand a little bit of background uh, to, this, um, to this passage so we can, we can better understand it. We don't know who the author of Hebrews was, um, uh, people have speculated a number of different authors, but we are very clear about who it's written to. Uh, the book is written to a group of Hebrews, obviously, um, and these were people who've grown, grown up with the Jewish culture, they've grown up, grown up with the sacrificial system uh, and the way that things were done in the Old Testament. And so now they're faced with a challenge. They're faced with something different, this gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus had literally revolutionized the whole world, turned everything upside down. And so all of these uh, early uh, believers or early uh, Jews had this choice to make. Do they go back to the old order, carry on what they were doing with the sacrifices and with everything else that was established in the Old Testament, or do they give their lives to Jesus? Do they follow the new order of things? And so the book's addressed to a wide range of people. Some were in the situation that they had left the old way and they were committed to God, but uh, we'll see that that was difficult for them. Others were on the fence. They didn't know what to believe. 
and some were considering going back to Judaism, considering going back to the old way of doing things. And so Hebrews sets out to, to highlight why Jesus was superior in so many things and why this new order was so much better than what they had in the Old Testament, the old way of doing things. And, um, and, and if we look back there at verse number, um, uh, at chapter 9 and verse number 6, uh, it says there, uh, sorry, verse number no, uh, 9, um, it says, in, uh, sorry, this is Hebrews 10, 9, I'll get the verse right in a second. Hebrews 10, 9, it says, He does away with the first, this is Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And so he's done away with the old order, this is this new order coming under Christ. And so Hebrews systematically breaks it down. He says, it says Jesus is better than the old prophets. He was better than the angels. He, he is the great high priest, so they don't need the priests anymore. And also, of course, that Jesus himself was God. That he was man and he was God. And we can, that was one of the first points that was established right back in Hebrews chapter 1. And if anybody ever says that the Bible doesn't claim that Jesus is God, and I've heard people say that to me in the past, um, you can take them to, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, because it says it twice in two, two verses there. So Hebrews 1, 8 says this. It says, But of the Son, that's of the Son, so that's Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God. And stop right there, because he's talking about the Son, and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God says it again, therefore God, your God, that's Je he's talking to Jesus and he's mentioning the Father, has anointed you. So there is two great verses to take people to if they ever are unsure about the deity of Christ. And two times there referring to Jesus as God. So Hebrews is saying Jesus is the way to follow. You know, you've been faithful in the old way of doing things, now you need to be faithful in following Jesus and giving your life to Jesus. But it wasn't without cost. These early believers, if they were to choose to follow Jesus, it was the, the narrow and difficult path they had to follow. And there was great persecution that came with it, great trouble that they had to go through. Uh, but of course it was the right thing to do. And so we see, and we get to in, verse, in chapter number 10, these three challenges having outlined all these things, why Jesus was better uh, than all these different, uh, the old way of doing things, we have three challenges to these new believers and three challenges that we can, um, we can apply to our own lives as well. And they're all in the form of let us do something. And, so verse, uh, and then verse 22 and 23 and 24 are the three challenges. In verse 22 we see, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So the first challenge is let us draw near. The second challenge is in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then the third challenge is in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so we're going to look at those three points this morning. And we'll start with verse number 19. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So these verses are comparing the, the old way of doing things with the new way. It's demonstrating how the sacrificial system was inferior to what was being replaced by Christ's offering once, and for, once for all. 
Instead of the people having to rely on the priests doing the sin offerings and entering into the holy place on behalf of the people every year, believers could put their faith and trust in Jesus, the high priest who had one sacrifice, and it was sufficient for all time. Chapter 9 of Hebrews and verse 26 says, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So they didn't need to enter the holy place. And it says there in verse number 19, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So remember, this is tying back to the temple, the sacrificial system. Uh, you remember how they, the priests would have to offer sacrifices for the people's sins. They, they would go in once a year into the holy place, and they would, uh, and that would be part of that sacrifice, part of that, that the, those things that they would have to do for the uh, sins of the people. And uh, it says there to enter boldly. In Christ, we can enter boldly into that holy place. And uh, they certainly wouldn't do that in the Old Testament times, would they? Those priests uh, would have entered with trepidation. They would have been feared for their lives because if they didn't do this, the, the uh, ceremonial part right, if their hearts weren't right as they went in, they, they knew where they were entering into the presence of a holy and living God. And if they weren't right, then they'd be struck down dead. And so it wouldn't be boldly that they would enter into that place. I certainly wouldn't enter boldly, and I don't think you would either. But in Christ we can enter boldly. And it talks there about the curtain, it says in verse 20, we enter through the curtain. And you remember that in the temple they had the, the, the veil, it's called, or the curtain, this big thick piece of fabric that separated God's glory in the holy place from the people. And that was partly for the people's protection, because they couldn't come into contact with the holy God, but also because God was holy and couldn't be with unholy people. There was this dividing line between the people and God. But when Jesus died on the cross, we hear that the temple curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. Not as a man would rip it from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. It was a supernatural event. And as Christ died on the cross, that was a picture that now all could enter into the holy place uh, through Christ's offering on the cross. And that's what he's referring to there, this new and living way through the curtain, which is his flesh. So because of Jesus' sacrifice, that separation was now gone. Uh, the priests were now out of a job uh, because they didn't weren't needed because there was a high priest in Jesus Christ. And every believer had this free access now, bold access to come to God through Jesus. So this is a, a real reason for these early believers and for us to celebrate. They didn't have to rely on the priests and these, these yearly things and all the rituals and things that they were doing. They could come boldly to the holy place to be uh, to commune with God. So we see where to draw near. And they had this access, and we have this access, and what a blessing that is. And it says to draw near with a true heart. With a true heart. God loves us genuine, genuineness. He loves us to be genuine. He loves us to speak honestly and openly to him and to have a true heart. And one of my favorite heroes of the Bible is David. Um, for many reasons, obviously all the battles that he fought and won on, with God's help, uh, the, the, the great things that he did. But more than all of that, 
it says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. And I think that's a real testimony. I mean, what a thing to, to have. I don't think there's a higher compliment that anyone could be could uh, could pay somebody that, than to say that they were a man after God's own heart. Um, and that's truly something that I'd, I would love if someone could ever say that about me. But it's something to, to aspire to, that David had this heart that was a, after God's own heart. It was genuine. And uh, David talked about that a lot. And you can read a lot of different things in the Psalms that he said about about the way he looked at God and, and the things that he, he said and did that showed that heart. And Psalm 119 verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And David was one of them. He, didn't, he wasn't perfect, obviously. He made mistakes, just like we do, but he sought God with his whole heart. And so if we're to draw near, we need to draw near with a true heart, an honest heart. And when David was talking to his, uh, was instructing his son Solomon, he says in First Chronicles, he says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. To draw near with a true heart is to come before God and worship and honesty and praise and adoration. Again, David says in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. That's what it is to come to God with a true heart and to draw near to him. And on top of that, it says, we have to draw near with a true heart but in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can have this full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, that refers again back to that sacrificial system. You remember the the, uh, the priests would sprinkle blood and would, would do lots of washing in the, in the, the, in the laver and, and the with the holy water, with the blessed water, and all that sort of all that process that they went through, but it wasn't sufficient. They'd have to redo it over and over again. But with a, with uh, our hearts sprinkled clean, shows that we can be truly guilt-free. We can be completely clean. Our conscience doesn't even need to condemn us, because in Christ, all of our sins are taken care of. There's no second guessing as to whether we've done it right. I mean, I'm sure those priests regularly thought, are we doing this right? Are we pleasing God? Are we doing this in the right way? Are we doing everything the way that he wants us to? In Christ, we don't need that. We just need Christ because he is sufficient. And he can make us perfectly clean. Look at these prophetic words from Ezekiel chapter 36. And it talks about the same sort of things. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When we place our faith in Christ and we're saved, we're made a new creature, perfectly clean, and we can be undoubted, undoubting our salvation. We can have that full assurance of faith that it talks about that we are guilt-free and we can stand before God 
pure and clean. God doesn't see our sin and our failures. He sees Christ's perfect sacrifice. And we are his, his precious children. And just as the Father desires uh, a son to draw near to him, God desires us to commune with him, draw near to him. And it's a commandment here too. So there are a lot of circumstances that were getting in the way of this group of Hebrews drawing near to God. Uh, there were doubts about about changing everything that they'd been doing. Do they follow this new way of doing things? And there's persecution going on for those who did decide to follow Jesus. And there's lots of things that could hinder them from drawing near to God and to taking this step. And what about us? You know, sometimes there's a lot of things in life that, that get, in our, get in our way of us drawing near to Christ. Doubts and worries and concerns can stop us from approaching God. Perhaps even as it says there, an evil conscience, maybe our guilt of our sin can stop us from drawing near to Christ. We can be like Adam and Eve in the garden where we cowered away because of our sin. But we can be pure and washed through what Christ did on the cross. He, his sacrifice is more than sufficient for us. And we have this amazing freedom to draw near to God and to walk with him every day. The curtain is torn open. Are we entering in? Are we drawing near to him? So our first challenge is let us draw near to Christ. The second challenge then from verse number 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So our second challenge this morning is let us hold fast. Hold fast. You know, as Christians we don't have to be unsure of what we believe. We, don't, we are not to water down the gospel or, the, or twist it into something that it's not meant to be. We are hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And this idea of holding fast is similar to what uh, Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. He uses the imagery of a soldier going into battle. And he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And he says there in, in Ephesians 6, to put on all the armor that you need, which God gives us. He gives us the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword that is the word of God. He says, be fully armed, put all that on and stand firm. It's this idea of not retreating, of not giving up ground to the enemy. It's a gutsy sort of challenge. So what are we to hold fast to? It says there we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we were to ask Paul what the confession of his hope was, he'd probably point us to 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So we're to hold fast to that confession, to the Gospel, the truth as outlined in the Gospel, not adding to it, not taking away from it, not adding man's ideas to it, but what it says in the Bible. And the word there, to hold fast is katecho, 
Uh, and that literally means to hold tightly, but also to take possession of it. It's to hold fast of it as if it was your own, to grab hold of it and never let it go. A little bit like a pit bull with a bone, it's holding on to it. And are we like that with the gospel? Have we locked it away in our hearts and would we defend it to the death? When the enemy attacks us, are we, uh, are we going to stand? Are we going to hold firm or are they going to push us back? And although this sounds a little bit macho, uh, the truth is we'll never stand in our own power. It's a bit like David, you know, he, when he put on all of Saul's armor to go and fight Goliath, uh, all that man-made armor was worthless to him, wasn't it? Instead, he took all that off and he just took a sling and went in God's power, and when he did, he was unbeatable. That's what we must be determined to do, to hold on. We bring the slingshot, God brings the power. And so we hold to hold on to the confession of our hope. Now the word hope has kind of changed its meaning a little bit. Uh, today it's kind of like a little bit of an uncertainty in the word hope. You can say that I'm hoping for a Ferrari. Uh, the chances are I'll probably never get one. Uh, in fact, I probably know I'm never going to get one. But biblical hope's not like that. Biblical hope doesn't have uncertainty. It's a sure hope. It's a hope with confident expectation. It's based on faith, and we have to have faith that God's word is true, and that we have to have faith that Jesus is who he said he, said he was. That, that takes faith. But more than that, it's based on promises of him who is faithful. It says there at the end of verse 23, For he who promised is faithful. You know, sometimes we make promises uh, that perhaps we shouldn't make. Uh, either because we were we never able to keep them, or because we have good intentions, but other things get in the way of our promises, and then we can't make good on them. But God is not like that. He's not limited. In fact, you can search the scriptures, and every promise he makes does come to pass. He promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him. And what happened? He made a great nation out of him. God promised a Messiah would come, the king of kings, someone who would reign on David's throne, someone who would be the salvation of Israel and a light to the Gentiles. And all of that happened in Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus, the very Son of God, came to prepare a way of salvation for any who could call on him. And he makes this promise to us in John 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we can base our hope and our faith on promises of a God who keeps his promises. We have an amazing hope for the future based on the promises of an almighty God who does not lie. Do we treasure that? Do we hold on to it? Do we defend it? See, well, the first two points, the first two challenges here, to draw near to God and to hold on to our hope, they both go together. The closer we draw to God, the more easy it is to hold on to this hope and to hold fast in the face of confrontation. And so we look at the third challenge this morning in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. To stir each other up. So we draw near to Christ, 
we hold fast and then we stir each other up. And this word stir is to stimulate, to provoke each other, uh, the positive provoke, uh, not the negative one, but to, to encourage each other to love and good works. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough last year to hear um, both Eric Murray on one occasion and Nathan Cohen on another. They're both gold medal winning Olympic rowers. And they both talked about how they, this little country called New Zealand, there's only a handful of rowers here comparatively. How do they get to the top? How do they become gold medal winning uh, rowers? And uh, it's, it's all based around Lake Karapiro out there by Cambridge. They have the high performance center there, which is the, the rowing center. And all the rowing teams that we have all get together on the lake every single day. And what they do is obviously we don't have enough to race all the teams against each other. So they have the twos and the fours and the singles and the eights. All these different rowing teams all get on the lake at the same time. And they organize it so it's one big race and they, they race each other every single day. And they all finish, the, they're all planned so they all have uh, different head starts on each other. So they all finish together on the, on the line. So every day they're competing to be the very best and to get across the line first. And it's whoever does better than they did the day before that gets a line across the line first. They're all timed so that they should finish together. It's whoever, and they're, so they're provoking each other. They're helping each other to get across the line. They're challenging each other. And it's that challenging and that, that working against each other and with each other that helps each of those rows to, to strive and get better and better every single day. And that's this idea here of provoking one another, of stirring one another up, that we're all getting a little bit better, we're all encouraging each other to go faster, to go better, to go deeper in the Lord. That's what we should be doing. And we should be doing that at every opportunity we have with each other. Certainly at church, but also during the week. In our lives, we should be involved with each other and with other Christians uh, outside of our congregation too. And each time we should be thinking about how, considering there it says, consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. And when we look to the scriptures, we can see people like Barnabas, who this was a key part of his ministry, uh, so much so that he was called the son of encouragement. And uh, he, he stirred people up. He encouraged people to follow Christ. He taught, um, preached, he pastored, pastored the church, and he traveled with, uh, with Paul. He was persecuted with Paul. In Acts 13, he said, you know, as Paul and, uh, Acts 13, verse number 42 says, As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout con converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God, to continue in this following Christ. It's our job to encourage each other like that. Not in a condescending way, but in an encouraging way. In love, with words of encouragement and exhortation, just like Barnabas did. We know well the Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 7, where it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that's what we're to be to each other. Iron sharpening iron. Working together to encourage each other towards love and good works. There's a couple of things about that that we need to notice. First of all, if there's two pieces of iron and they just sit next together, next to each other, they won't actually do anything, will they? 
They won't become sharpener, sharper. There's no sharpening effect going on there. There needs to be interaction between them. There needs to be connection between the two pieces. And just so it's the same, if we, if we never connect to each other, uh, we never sharpen each other. And if we don't do that, then it's just like two pieces of iron sitting next to each other. But not only is thus there need to be interaction, there needs to be the right kind of interaction, doesn't there? For both to be sharpened, they must work on the, each other in the same way and at the right angles. Uh, you know, I sort of see it like an axe head, you know, working together and two axe heads working together. If one's just banging on the other one, it doesn't work. They have to work in harmony. And there has to be those kind of conversations going on that are encouraging to both parties. Um, you know, we rely on our pastor a lot, but it also is up to us to work with each other as well um, to, to stimulate and to, to promote that growth. And so our words are very, very important. Uh, I never realized how important they were probably until I was married. Uh, you realize pretty quickly that when you first become married, words have great importance. And, uh, and when you're living so closely with somebody, they can really be uh, amplified. You can, be, can do a lot of good and can do a lot of damage with your words. So they're important when you're married, but then you have kids and you realize it's even more so with them. You know, with our words, we can make our kids feel sort of 10 feet tall and bulletproof, uh, or we can make them feel sort of worthless and unimportant. It's a big responsibility for us to use, our, use kind words with each other, and we understand that, but often do we use the same care when we're talking to each other. You know, there's a lot of great verses that are one another verses, but I'll read you four. First uh, Thessalonians 5 says, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Okay, that's our job to all other believers, is to encourage one another and build one another up. 2 Corinthians 13 says, Finally, brethren, uh, finally brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Galatians 6 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you see there the different ways that iron can sharpen iron comforting each other, encouraging each other, uh, rejoicing with each other, and challenging each other to go on for Christ. And that's our responsibility to each other. And this, these things need to happen in the right environment, don't they? We need to be having those conversations that encourage each other, uh, real conversations in real time. And the word there is consider. And I think that's an interesting word. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It means to put some thought into how we talk to other people. And different people require us to talk to them in different ways. And we need love and encouragement to do that. Uh, sometimes people need a sympathetic ear. Sometimes we need to, to be studying the scriptures together and, and getting the truth out of it. And sometimes people just need to be loved and appreciated. And so different people need it different ways and at different times we all need uh, those differences and we need to think about considering how we treat each other and how we encourage each other in the faith. And a demonstration of this is, is the Apostle Paul. And in First Thessalonians 2 he says, But we were gentle among you, 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul shows the love here that he had for the people. Both him and Silas had this real desire for the church, the people in Thessalonica. They invested themselves in the lives of the people. And there's that beautiful picture of care that just as a mother would care for her newborn child, so they cared for that early church and for those brothers and sisters in Christ. But then at other times, and it continues, he would treat them not like a mother, but more like a father. And as a father would encourage his children, so Paul would encourage the the people around him. And it says there in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is what it is to consider how to stir each other up. This is where we need the Holy Spirit to help us minister to each other in the best way and at the right time. First Thessalonians 5 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And that's a challenge right there. I think you could spend just about a lifetime trying to achieve that. It says there, as we see the day approaching. We see the world getting worse around us every day. I think we'd all agree to that. And as we do, that's an encouragement to us to encourage each other. To push each other on towards love and good works. We're reminded, uh, as it says in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 36, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus makes another promise to us, and we talked about how he always keeps his promises. He promises that he's coming back. And we need to be ready for that. And one of the things that we need to do is to stir each other up and to remind each other of that truth. So we've seen three challenges this morning. These three exhortations. To draw near hold fast, and to stir up. And I pray that we'll take these away. I hope they'll stick in our heads to draw near, hold fast, and stir up. And it's a little bit like uh, in drawing near, we look up to God, fix our eyes on heaven. And then holding fast, we look inwards to make sure that we spend the time that we need in his word and have the right doctrine and the right truth. And then lastly, that we look outwards to other people and stir them up to also follow the word of God. So I pray that those three challenges will just uh, resonate with us this morning. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up.